From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. Thanks for downloading this podcast, whether you're in Dallas, Dalston, or Delhi. This week, we're talking PayPal launches Stablecoin. Really interesting move by PayPal, a massive global brand into this crypto space. We talk through the impact that we think this will have. Apple announces $10 billion in savings account deposits. We've been following Apple in this space ever since they launched this account, having huge traction uh, and talking through, as always, kind of the impact that we think Apple is having on the wider financial services space. And Drake launches e-commerce store based on his bougie Toronto mansion. We talk about going shopping and all sorts of other things and surprise musical interests. We get into all this and much more on today's show. Back shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Hello and welcome LFG people to Fintech Insider. Blockchain Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome to episode 770 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, Ross Gallagher, Ventures Director at 11FS. How are you doing, Ross? Always nice to hang out. What are you working on at the moment? Yeah, great to hang out. Um, what am I working on? I'm working on lots of really interesting things with some really cool clients. Um, I think very much sort of working towards that that next generation of financial services. I mean, you'll know, Kate, that's what's so great about the work that we do with our clients, right? It's never short in ambition. It's certainly true. Um, we have a very exciting FinTech Insider debut for Rory O'Reilly, CEO and co-founder Not. Thanks so much for joining us, Rory. We've got some exciting news from for you guys later that we'll get into, but can you give us a little intro to yourself and Not, please? Yeah, of course. Well, thanks so much for having me, Kate and Ross. Uh, as an intro for us for Not, co-founded by my brother and myself, we really solve the switching point of when you have to switch banks. Have you guys ever switched banks before? I mean, not not fully, right? So I'm sure we can talk about it in some more detail, but yeah, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, extremely tricky. So we make it extremely easy to switch banks. We sell an API to banks that they can onboard customers and have them retain longer and faster. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for joining us and looking forward to getting to your news a little bit later on the show. And last but by no means least, we have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Adam Bialy, founder and CEO of Fiat Republic. Welcome back to the show, Adam. What should our audience know about you and Fiat Republic, please? Thank you so much, Kate. Glad to be back. Um, I'm a payments geek, a product guy by trade, um, a 15 years uh, founder and CEO of Fiat Republic. Fiat Republic, we're um, on a mission to bring uh, digital assets mainstream, trying to help the innovators of the space um, surround their relationship with traditional banking. Uh, we're a regulated banking service platform. Uh, we also do compliance and service. Um, and we aggregate traditional banks and payment infrastructure for crypto platforms specifically. So we're very niche sort of payments and banking uh, services provider. We call ourselves Web 2.5. It's actually our trademark. So if you use it, you have to pay me in the UK, at least. Noted. I will not be using this throughout the show because I've run out of money already this month. So <laughs> noted. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, thanks very much for joining us. Looking forward to getting your take on the news. So with that, let's get into the news. Our first story we've taken from The Verge, but it's been covered in quite a few places. PayPal launches stablecoin backed by the US dollar. PayPal is launching its own stablecoin, PayPal USD or PYUSD for short. 
The company says the cryptocurrency token is fully backed by US dollar deposits and can be bought or sold on PayPal's app or website at $1 per PYUSD. With the stablecoin, users can make person-to-person payments, fund purchases with the currency at checkouts, and transfer PYUSD between PayPal and other outside wallets. PayPal says that users can also convert the currency supported by PayPal to and from PYUSD as well. The coin will become available in the coming weeks to customers in the US with PayPal balance accounts. It will also be available on the PayPal-owned Venmo app soon. Adam, thanks for joining us today. Really kind of excited to hear what you think about this. How significant a moment is this for stablecoins, do you think? I think it's huge, actually. Um, uh, PayPal, you know, signaled their uh, and enthusiasm about crypto and digital assets a couple of years ago when they, you know, first um, 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 started selling and, you know, or enabling users to sell and buy crypto. Um, and it's, it's very significant because it's like in the stablecoin space or pri- private stablecoin space, you have uh, Circle with USDC, you have Tether with USDT. Um, uh, you know, Tether in particular has come under under fire a couple of times for not having uh, enough liquid assets to back those those tokens. Um, and and what they what they share uh, or what they have in common is they control the supply, but not the demand for the token. Okay, whereas PayPal is a is a company that has almost half a billion users and about thirty million merchants around the world. Um, you know, using them uh, to accept payments from from those half a million, half a billion users. So there's a, a living and breathing economy with supply and with demand, and PayPal controls both the supply and demand. So as a result, the, the entire project is a bit more centralized in its nature, right? It's a bit more private. Um, you know, PayPal retains control, and PayPal is a is you know, a TradFi player, I, w- I would even say, because they were founded in 1998, they were part of the Web1 <laughs> um, sort of uh, movement. They 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 came through Web3 and, uh, sorry, Web2, and they're now looking into Web3. Um, and, and what is also significant is, is PayPal decides whether a payment in stablecoin will be accepted on behalf of their merchants. That's super, super significant because they, they have all of those pre-existing contracts for service provision to the merchants for accepting payments um and they can they can they can stretch those to encompass um this additional you know payment method in effect which is uh which is stablecoin or another way to kind of hold value and transmit value which is which is their own stablecoin so i think overall this is huge news um um and i'm super excited about it yeah no it's a great a great summary thank you um I suppose you've touched on like just the size of PayPal's user base, right? Like there's obviously tons of ways this could be rolled out or tons of parts of that base that they could focus on. Like what are the use cases that you think PayPal are most likely to be focusing on first? So I think p- payments, obviously, PayPal is in the name, uh, you know, it's, it's a pal for your payments, uh, right? And, and, and that's, that's their primary use case. And, but to kind of, um, you know, break it down a little bit or unpack it a little bit more, you know, you've got peer-to-peer payments. They have Venmo. Um, I don't know if you guys ever used Venmo, but it's super popular in the US, uh, especially among uh, college students and high school students for sending really like small microtransactions um, to, to one another. Um, and it's, you know, adding stablecoin to kind of power that network. Uh, expands those possibilities because the the, the most exciting part about stablecoin is uh, PayPal have announced that it's actually going to be accepted by outside of PayPal, right? You're going to be able to send it to Ethereum wallets, right? So uh, it kind of merges those economies of PayPal, which is already quite significant and formidable, uh, with the economies of Web3, uh, which are kind of up and coming and, you know, are, are growing uh, um, uh, you know, slowly but steadily growing uh, in the background. So, payments I would see as 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 the main use case here. Peer to peer payments, international payments as well. I, I think uh, you know in the previous show uh, when, when I was with you guys, I was um, uh, sort of uh, mentioning that um, if uh, there was will on both sides of the transaction, stable coins could replace SWIFT today. If if the banks that were participants, you know, in in that transaction were willing. Um, and uh, and and that kind of holds true for international payments. Stablecoins will ensure that international payments are super quick, uh, probably reduce the fees as well, because in effect, this is a parallel network that runs, you know, a payment from one country to another in in a matter of seconds, right? 
Um, it doesn't have to use all of those ISO standards that Swift is governed by. Um, so it's faster, it's, it's more, it's less clunky, it's more frictionless. And then finally, um, paying for normal goods, right? So PayPal, as I said, has 30 million merchants. These are, you know, anything from e-commerce uh, uh, websites to physical, you know, actual, you know, um, uh, uh, merchants providing physical goods, uh, services, like, you know, there's a variety of, of all sorts of businesses that are uh, merchants of PayPal. And this opens up those merchants to payment by a digital currency, right, by stablecoin, albeit it's PayPal's own stablecoin, but that, you know, that that matter aside, it is still a stablecoin. It is a digital digital currency. It's running on Ethereum. Um, and then the final use case that I see is paying for um, or, or en enabling PayPal to kind of penetrate Web3, right? Because there's this possibility for you to, uh, you know, transfer PayPal coin or PayPal USD to a external Ethereum wallet, right? So PayPal will now try and uh, you know, uh, sell this 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 token to uh, all sorts of uh, mainstream exchanges so that they can accept that um, as a as a method of payment, as a method of transfer of liquidity. So that's that's also um, quite significant. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ross, what was your reaction to this news? Were you excited, surprised, all of the above? No, I'd agree with Adam. I think I think excited. Look, I think maybe for some of our listeners that are a little bit. Um, less familiar i'd say that it's probably important to distinguish between like cryptocurrencies which are typically sort of highly volatile and have more in common maybe with like commodities and sit maybe more in the trading space and and sort of stable coins right which aim to like strip out all of that volatility and generally i suppose the idea is that they can then behave a little bit more like fiat currencies as adam sort of described and people ultimately can be confident that they'll essentially hold their value over time and i think that's important right like if i accept one stable coin today in exchange for whatever I'm selling, then I need to be confident that it's going to retain that value, that same purchasing power that whenever I go to buy something, I'm going to get that same value, right? And actually, when you look out into the market now, I don't think we can really take that stability for granted, right? When you look at what's happening right now, even with inflation, with like fiat currencies and all of that sort of stuff, you can see why that's so important. So I think stable coins actually are super interesting. I think Adam's done an incredible job of like describing the benefits in that sort of like private context. But I also think that when you extend it, for example, to like central bank backed digital currencies, you know, I think I've mentioned inflation and being able to control for that. But you know, there's also potentially real benefits in terms of like financial inclusion, you know, especially when you consider that like, lots and lots, I think the vast majority of central banks are looking at CBDCs. Um, when you think about how we're moving more and more and more towards like cashless in our societies, mm -hmm. if you can launch a CBDC that sort of like is a digital alternative to cash that has lots of those same characteristics as cash, then you can actually bring sort of marginalized and excluded groups back into financial services. And so there's lots of sort of very valuable use cases. So yeah, really, really interesting one. Rory, what's your what's your take on how successful this will be? Like, so they're starting in the US, right? Like, do you do you think this is gonna have traction in the US market? I think it might have traction, and the reason why it might be different something than Meta's coin Libra is that PayPal isn't just a tech company. You know, it's a global behemoth in payments, so it's completely different than a tech company launching an interesting stablecoin. And I think Adam really hit the crux of the argument that they're solving the chicken and the egg problem. They're not just throwing a coin out there and saying, hey, have some fun with it, send it to your friends. They're connecting with the 30 million merchants that Adam mentioned and the folks that want to pay. So if anyone could win this market, it's PayPal. And it's no surprise that they're trying to get into it. I mean, like Adam mentioned, in 1998, they came out and said, you can pay for things with, in the beginning, an email link, which was so foreign to everyone. Um, and now with digital currency is obviously kind of taking over in, in some sort of realm. It makes perfect sense to me that PayPal would try to stay on the frontier and perhaps even even lead it into the new age. So no surprise. And I think that they're well positioned to potentially potentially win in that market. Yeah, I think there's sometimes maybe a bit of a, a tendency or a risk that, that people almost underestimate PayPal, right? That you see it as not an incumbent institution, but as you say, kind of one of like the OGs and therefore it's kind of seen almost as being a bit behind. But as you said, like they've got the scale and the reach and the experience. So potentially could do some really interesting things in this space. There's one follow-up, if, if if I may, sorry, um, to, to actually Ross's point around financial inclusion. Uh, it's one of the use cases you could see unbanked um, people, you know, PayPal is being used by 
you know, many millions uh, unbanked customers that don't even have a bank account. Um, and, and with this uh, opportunity now with the stablecoin, you essentially have like a self-contained closed loop system. You can enter, you just, uh, you know, give your KYC, your passport, utility bill to PayPal, you treat them like a bank, right? And then uh, what you bring is cryptocurrency to PayPal. Let's say you, you've got some Ethereum because you're, you're running on it or you're, you're doing something with it. You, you, you deposit it into PayPal, then you convert the Ethereum to this new US dollar coin, um, and you're in. You're in the sort of uh, PayPal financial services uh, sort of uh, kingdom or ecosystem, uh, and and then you can spend it with all of those merchants that they're that they're working with. That is quite powerful. That I can see that as as potentially solving a lot of problems for for many uh, you know countries that are struggling with uh, with the uh, you know a huge percentage of unbanked population. Yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose, I mean, we're, being, we're all being very positive, very complimentary. I suppose just to kind of maybe be slightly more um, pessimistic, or not pessimistic is the wrong word, but yeah, Adam, obviously it's quite a difficult time in the US to be in this space full stop, right? It's under heavy regulatory scrutiny. Um, you know, regulators are really cracking down on the, the kind of crypto space more generally. So you know, why why are they launching? Is, you know, is there is there a risk that this kind of gets undermined by that, that this has great opportunity, but regulators are going to get in the way? So I have a, I don't know, maybe a, a, a bit of an unorthodox approach to this. I think it's an actually perfect, it's a perfect moment to launch a stablecoin by PayPal. Because, um, you know, if you look at what the regulators are saying, or the, what the US government essentially is saying through the regulators, is that, um, you know, crypto and uh, the volatility that comes with it, and the uncertainty uh, and, and the sort of lack of uh, control over it, um, this entire argument of you know, certain crypto tokens being a security, right? That is completely missing the mark with stablecoins. Stablecoins you know, have this excuse of, hey, this is pegged by dollar, right? And as long as you can, you can show in your balance sheet and PayPal will, I'm sure, you know, they have treasurers with 50 years of experience, that, that uh, the, the dollars that are backing this, those uh, tokens are liquid, Right, so use a U.S. Treasury bills or, uh, you know, cash equivalents and cash. Um, that's it. You know, there's there's nothing to pick apart here. Really, there there isn't. There, you know, and plus on top of that, PayPal is highly highly regulated in the U.S. Um, if you look through their website and 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 the registers of the different state regulators, they have a money service business, uh, you know, a securities license, um, all sorts of licenses, you know, digital asset licenses in in pretty much all of the states. So they are an old sort of school traditional finance player going into the space and 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 make really making the mark. I don't see the U.S. government cracking down on them. To be perfectly honest with you. So it's, it's so from that perspective, it's a really good time for them to be making that move, um, especially as in Europe we're we're having, you know, in Mica, for example, uh, Mica setting the tone for treating stablecoins like e-money. PayPal is e-money, right? It's stored value, electronic money, right? Um, and 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 that will Europe will legitimize that sort of business case. U.S. Um, U.S. government will follow suit, I think. I would, I would, uh, it's a bit of a speculation here, but I think they would follow uh, the de de determination of Europe that stablecoin essentially equals e-money. Okay, well, we're going to have to see how it plays out and we'll probably have to get you back on, Adam, if, if, if something changes. But we could chat about this one, I think, for a good chunk of the show, but sadly, we, we have to move on to our next story. Uh, this one comes from Axios and it is not API raises $10 million from Amex Plaid amid deposit war. Not has closed a $10 million Series A investment round to grow its API-based card-on-file management offering. The funding will allow Not to expand its merchant support and continue scaling its services to make payment processes easier for businesses and consumers, the company said in a press release. The company's API allows card issuers to instantly update card-on-file information at almost any merchant with just a few lines of code. This can ease the onboarding experience for consumers and increase revenue and retention for the bank. Rory, really fantastic to, to have you here to talk us through this. You know, firstly, big congrats on the raise. Um, yeah, as, as Ross mentioned, yeah, we have a real variety of, of listeners to this show from people that are like total finance nerds to quite you know, entry-level beginners kind of getting into the space. So can you talk us through kind of what the big problem is that you know, you've seen in the market that you're looking to solve? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's problems for consumers and there's problems for banks. For the consumers, this one is a pain point that we go through you know, every couple of years or so. 
Kate, I know that you mentioned at the beginning of the call that you haven't switched banks before, but Ross or Adam, have y'all ever switched banks or had to get a new card and update your payment credentials? I see Ross and Adam nodding their heads. Yeah, I had to switch between countries as well, which 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 is even more painful. Yeah, so it's a painful experience. And the reason why it's painful is you have to update your card on file information at all the merchants. So let's say you have your bank A on Amazon, Walmart, Target, you know, phone, 40 plus merchants, and you want to go to bank B. There's a bunch of cognitive load in knowing what merchants you need to change. And then you need to go to your purse or wallet, grab your card, navigate to the website, which involves context switching, Every UI UX is different, so you have to find the billing account payment settings page, add your card number, expiration, CVV, name, address, phone number, maybe even two-factor auth, and then repeat it for 30 to 40 merchants. That's the consumer pain point. For the card issuer or the bank pain point, they're spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to acquire and retain a customer. You guys have seen those offers of, hey, make sure that you spend 5,000 bucks so you can get 60,000 points. They're just dangling a carrot because it's so hard to convince people to switch banks and actually switch their spend. So what we have is an SDK, it's like a little widget that sits on your app or website, and it's very similar to Plaid in that it's just login and done. All you do is log into the merchant and full stop, that's it. Your card is dynamically updated at that merchant and set as your preferred card from your banking institution. So if you use Face ID to log in, you literally just look at your phone and your card updates. If you've got a password manager, it autofills. So we're solving the pain point for consumers of switching and for banks of onboarding. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Um, as you're talking through that, I'm just remembering all of those times. Yeah, when I've not switched banks, but you know, even when a card expires, right, and you get a new card, it's it's even at that point as well, right, where it's really, really difficult. It kind of reminds me, I'm not sure again if this exists in the US, but when you move house in the UK, you can set up like a postal redirect service, you know, to kind of change where your mail goes and all that sort of stuff. So I've always kind of thought this should exist for banking. So and it sounds like that's that's what you guys are trying to do. So it's super exciting. Um, you've got a number of big name backers, like really exciting people backing you. What was it what, is, what was it like to raise funds you know, with those people in the current market? I feel like we're asking this of everyone who comes on the shelf to a raise at the moment, but really interesting to get everyone's perspectives and kind of what, what was your journey in this round? You know, I would say that we're very lucky and that we've been building companies for a decade. My brother and myself, we dropped out of school. We became Teal Fellows. So we knew a lot about, you know, the PayPal's origining story because we heard it, heard it a bunch from uh, you know, all the Teal crew out there. Um, but we were just able to network and have friends in the industry who really, really wanted to back whatever we we're doing. So when we had the idea for not, we just went out into our network and a bunch of folks raised their hands and just incredibly lucky to have these people on board. And they act as advisors, investors, sounding board, introductions to clients. Um, I mean, we're just incredibly lucky. So for how was it? I would say, frankly, not too hard. We kind of shot shot it, shot the message out and showed people our product and they're like, oh my gosh, I wish I had that. Or I wish my portfolio companies had that. Um, and got it wrapped up in maybe six weeks or so. Cool. No, it sounds sounds super easy. Well, as in I'm sure not super easy, but it sounds like a relatively smooth process. So I think that's probably testament to the quality of the product and, and kind of what you guys are building. So so kudos to you. I mean, you talk about in the release, you know, wanting to expand your merchant support, continue scaling the services. I mean, I suppose what is the ambition? Like what what do you guys want to get to? where's the, where's the horizon? The ambition is is also very Plaid-like. Plaid changed banking connectivity. Back in the day, it was micro-deposits. And also back in the day, Plaid just got your ACH and routing. But now you can do transactions, you could send, you could even do some sort of pseudo-KYC AML, you could do some sort of pseudo-fraud detection. There's a lot of amazing things that you can do by connecting your bank account to a financial institution. Likewise, there's a lot of amazing things that you can do by connecting your merchant account. Changing your card is kind of the beachhead item that I think that we'll have a lot of success with. And we do think that in and of itself is a billion dollar market. But what about negotiating your bills? What about analyzing SKU data? What about changing your name if you get married? What about changing your address when you move or your phone number if you get a new phone? What about buying something not on that merchant's interface? These are just ideas that we're tinkering with, but there's so many different sorts of products that you can build if you connect successfully with a merchant and can you know, perform an action on the user's behalf, which is what we've developed. So I think the world is our oyster and what we could build. 
It's really exciting. Yeah, please, please don't build the whole like changing your name when you get married thing because that's the main thing I'm using at the moment as an excuse to my husband to not to not change my name. <laughs> that it will be too much effort. So if you take that friction away, I'm I'm gonna lose that argument. Um, Ross, my my name changing aside, like, are you excited? How excited are you by this? I hope Dan's not uh, a regular listener to the show, or else your secrets out. Um, but no, it's it's really interesting. So my initial reaction um, was actually my mind went to some of those um, those sort of future use cases, right? That you can build on top of the the core proposition, Rory. And I think you've just summed them up um, really well. I think you know you're building a great sort of like foundational product. I think that I completely agree with you. I think the world is absolutely a oyster. And then you know your, your question um, at, at, at the top sort of had me thinking about when I when I did switch recently and we're lucky enough in the UK that we have um the current account switch service um it's all managed by pay.uk you initiate the switch with your um new bank and they handle all of the account closure with your old bank and they move your money over and switch all of your recurring sort of direct debits and standing orders so actually from that perspective um we're pretty lucky but actually um I think that the need is still there, right, for for your product, which is how do I update all of the subscriptions, all of the card details that I have with retailers, with merchants, all of that sort of stuff, right? That still isn't being solved for through something like the current account switch service. So I can definitely see um, huge value, huge value in that. Like you said, it's just reducing that cognitive load. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think the UK is always in the forefront of switching, and they really like to empower their consumers by giving them the right to choose. And the US is kind of undergoing a similar thing with this concept of open banking. And open banking is just a new term for giving consumers the right to choose where they bank. And you shouldn't be beholden to a bank because it's hard to switch or you're scared to switch because if your direct deposit doesn't come, your livelihood is you know in jeopardy. Um, so I think maybe in four or five years, Having a solution, and maybe not as that catch-all solution, but having a solution that makes it easy to switch in America might be mandated by the government. Um, so I can totally see we're moving towards that. And another parallel that's kind of interesting that America has adopted is being able to port your phone numbers. Maybe 20-odd years ago, if you wanted to change phone numbers, you couldn't port it over. And then the UK, I believe, kind of paved that path for porting phone numbers, and then America adopted it. And now if you want to port, it's as easy as paying, I believe, 10 cents or something similar. Um, so who knows? Maybe maybe not is kind of that catch-all solution for all banks in the future. Uh, and hopefully we can kind of build towards that. Adam, do you think this type of technology could really change the game in terms like challenges or near banks becoming those, like you know, we talk about primary accounts, right? Like whatever that means, main accounts, primary accounts. But could this change the game? I think it would help, definitely. I, I mean, I... I so I moved a couple of times in between countries. That's why I was saying, you know, I switched bank accounts, but between countries, that is a, a complete mess. Um, you know, try and help me with that because <laughs> that, that it sounds like a, uh, you know, like a problem that some uh, some banks must have looked at. And even if it's a bank within their own network, right? So like it's, it's a HSBC group, you know, around the world, you have HSBC branch subsidiaries, whatever. Uh, it's still not friction, uh, frictionless. Like it's still super clunky. It's um, uh, everyone is kind of anchored in their sort of little ecosystem, and it, it kind of feels like um, in the states because of how big the states are, and then the state banks uh, also. There's so many of them per state. Uh, such a service, uh, you know, making it a bit easier and like reducing that that sort of anxiety of oh my god, what is going to happen with all of those carbon file, um, you know, websites that I'm I'm leaving behind. I think that's uh, that's sorely needed. So well done, and well done on the fundraise as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose in the the aftermath of the Silicon Valley stuff, Silicon Valley Bank stuff, I suppose we had a lot of chat about you know whether the fact that deposits are so movable and so fluid now, you know, obviously it's great for consumers, but does it kind of fundamentally challenge the, the structures or the underlying structures of, of financial services as a whole? So. Again, I suppose to put my pessimistic hat on, Rory. Obviously, it's great from consumers' perspectives that you guys are enabling, you know, this this freedom and this freedom of choice. But you know, are you almost exacerbating that problem? Like, is this are these types of products and services going to make it even easier for people to to shift their money fast? I think it'll absolutely make it people easier for people to shift their money. But I would kind of reframe um, the offering to the banks, and that these banks are paying gobs of money to acquire customers. And XX percentage of those customers don't even onboard. 
or they might use it as a secondary card or, God forbid, a tertiary card because they didn't switch their critical recurring spend. So we're not really directing people. We're not saying, hey, we love bank A, we love bank B. We're just making you more you. We're adding that frictionless experience to onboard customers after you've already won them, whether it's your APY, whether it's your amazing banking, you know, customer support. We just make it easier to be more you. Um, so I think that we're enabling banks. But I do think that you have a great point. At a certain point when, call it maybe 20% of banks have not enabled or something similar to it, now it becomes less of an offensive moat and more of a defensive offering. And you've, you've kind of seen this play out with early direct deposit, where the folks who had early direct deposit won really big. And now if you don't have it, it's kind of like, eh, why don't you have that? Or if you're ha- charging for ATM fees, you know, maybe half of banks don't charge for it, and that's offensive, and maybe half of them do because they're so well-established and they can charge for, for ATM fees. You'll kind of see that dichotomy of folks will have it and they'll be offensive, and then eventually it'll be defensive to not have it. Yeah, it's super, super interesting to see how it plays out. Well, yeah, tobacco for people, congrats again on the raise and it really excites to see what you do with the money. So come back and come back and talk to us when, when you, you launch your next big thing. Okay, we're gonna take a very quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. FinTech Insider community, we need your help. The 11FS Awards returns on Wednesday, 15th of November, and we will be celebrating the people and businesses from across the globe who are helping to move the industry forward. This is where you come in. Do not miss your chance to influence who takes home an 11FS Awards trophy, whether they're trying to make the world a better place for their customers, changing the game for businesses, or utilizing AI to improve their customer experience. We want you to tell us who is building the best stuff. Submit your nominations right now at 11fsawards.com. That's 11fsawards.com. Welcome back. Before we get into this week's big stories, a moment to tell you about our latest FinTech Insider Insights show. In our most recent episode, we're asking how to build a US mobile bank. David Breer and Jason Bates are joined by the team from Millie, a mobile bank from the First National Bank of Omaha. A few years back, Elonafes had the privilege of being involved in the process of bringing this to market. So this podcast looks at the challenges of what it was like to get that off the ground. You can find that podcast wherever you got this one. Okay, let's get back into the news. This story comes from the FT Advisor, uh, and that is finance industry needs to be more accessible for those who didn't go to university. There should be more opportunity for people from lower income backgrounds in the financial services industry, according to Emily Breer, Associate Financial Advisor at the private office. Speaking to FT Advisor as part of the New Voices series, Breer said people needed to be offered the same opportunity whether they came from more established backgrounds or not. She said some people might not be able to go to university because their financial background didn't dictate that. Those people shouldn't be shunned from the industry. There needs to be more internships, apprenticeships, schemes within this industry so that it feels more accessible for people who didn't go to university. We put out a poll on the 11FS LinkedIn asking you, our listeners, whether a university degree should be a requirement in financial services. With 200 votes, 69% said no, it shouldn't be a requirement. And 22% said yes, it should be. 8% said they were unsure. Um, I suspect, obviously, there's maybe a bit of bias, depending on like what you did yourself, but... Um, Ross, what, what do you reckon about this one? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's actually a super interesting story. Um, I really like this um, sort of new voices. It's a, a new series from FT Advisor. It's all about focusing on the experiences of like underrepresented um, sort of voices communities in that sort of like financial advice and, and wealth management sector. Um, essentially, people that are in that space that don't really conform to that industry stereotype. And the stereotype is real, right? To answer your question, there's data from the Chartered Insurance Institute, 81% of financial analysts and advisors were white, only 16% were women, only 8% were under the age of 30, right? Those figures, I think, come from 2015 to 2019. They're the most recent we have. But yeah, look, to answer your question, I mean, clearly that needs to be challenged, right? Like, I think that's what's so good about this, uh, 
this new series is it's about spotlighting those people who don't conform to that stereotype and giving them a platform to share like their views, their experiences. Um, one thing I think that's worth noting as well is you've got the FCA, they're looking to bring out their diversity and inclusion consultation later this year. They're going to invite people to input. So I think it's something that, um, at that level, we're sort of very much aware of. So hopefully that's a good sign. We're going to see a real push uh, towards sort of greater inclusion moving forward. Rory, obviously, you know, you mentioned in the previous story kind of like your your trajectory kind of through through school and kind of into starting kind of what you guys are doing. I suppose, what does this look like in the US? And, and what has your kind of personal experience taught you about like the role of university as a positive or a negative and in coming into fintech? I think my personal experience is kind of an anomaly in a sense, um, in that my brother and myself, we both dropped out and now now we're in fintech and we've got hundreds of friends who dropped out and made these amazing companies. And you know all the names of the, like the famous dropouts who have done great things. But I think by and large, there are millions upon millions, probably dozens of millions of folks who who are not afforded the opportunity to get into something, perhaps because they were never exposed to it or because they never just felt a pull to it. And if you think about our formative years, at least in America, we don't particularly learn about finance. We take math, history, science every single year, right? For 15, 16, 17 years straight. Um, but very rarely do we have a finance course unless it's like an elective that you've chosen randomly. So how can we expect you know, young people in our generation to go into finance if they've never been exposed to even the most basic of tax accounting? So I think that if we were able to bring folks closer to the fold, that'd be you know, an initial good step. Um, and the only reason I was really exposed to finance in general is just going to a university where I don't know, maybe 30% of the kids are going to investment banking or PE and everyone is, you know, their dads are finance wizards and they, they know everything from birth. So I think I was exposed kind of randomly um, as opposed to, you know, me being self-directed into, into loving finance. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I suppose when you, I think back to when I started at uni, I had probably always very naive ideas about these, whatever they say in the perspectives right transferable skills and things like that but actually I think the main benefit is I suppose one like the brand of like the school that you go to if you're lucky enough to go to a good school but two and probably more importantly like the network um like the people that you meet and kind of being put into that environment and even to your point Rory like even if people who, who go to uni or college and then drop out like they're still probably in that bubble and they still make connections even if you don't stay in that bubble all the way through like I feel like lots of people do see or still seem to to form networks or make connections kind of through that point. So it's how you, how you replicate that. Obviously there's a big push, I think for you know more apprenticeships or more kind of routes into finance that aren't through universities. But I'm interested to think about like, would those apprenticeships, even if they gave you some of the practical skills and some of the sort of practical training, would they give you some of those same sort of, you know, social networks to use the kind of uh, the film phrase right would they give those to you I think it's an interesting interesting challenge Adam what do you think what's been your experience of of, of this in your in your time in the industry yes I mean I'm also an anomaly just like Rory um, I um, actually when I when I finished high school uh, I was in Poland my dad told me uh, Adam you need to specialize in being universal so um, you know, try and acquire as many skills as you can, uh, as many different vantage points as you can. So I went through a, a bit of a, you know, university crawl. Uh, as a result, I, I went, my first degree was in linguistics. Um, then I did a degree at Berkeley, actually, in Boston, uh, music production. Um, you know, I did an MBA, uh, postgraduate, um, and, um, and, and I even spent a year in software engineering uh, you know, trying to build a or replicate a calculator, you know, in C++. So all of those things actually gave me a unique perspective. And, and I think I would highly recommend like, and there's, there's a book even, uh, it's called range. I don't know if you guys know it. Uh, but it talks about like how generalists kind of rule the world or, or how, how generalists excel and, and, um, you know, how, how training specifically training to be a generalist. Uh, helps uh, you in life and helps you kind of deal with whatever comes your way and adjust and and remain flexible and and I'm I'm a big believer in that philosophy so um, you know university degree helps uh, it needs to be um, you know it, you need to know what you're kind of getting out of it once you're getting into it um, and if you don't know then then try different things that would be my sort of recommendation 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really good steer. Um, Ross, do you think like apprenticeships or something like that are the answer or is it broader than that? I, I, listen, I think I think apprenticeships are a huge part of the answer. I mean, look, I've, I went to university. I have an MSc in economics. I have never once tried to convince myself that I couldn't have learned to do the job that I do today if I didn't have that and that sort of background. So absolutely, I think that's a huge part of it. I think as well, right, like zooming out, if if you're, you're sort of like bringing in people with different backgrounds, people with different life experiences, people with different perspectives, like I think we all stand to benefit from that, right? I think that's the bit that's often missed. We're not just talking about like philanthropy here and yeah, sure, like we should share the wealth. I think it's about like, integrating that greater diversity and actually sort of like opening up to inclusion and the benefits that that has across the board like you know not breaking the cycle and the sort of level of like um some of the stats that i quoted at the top of this you know that the sort of white male and stale that whole thing that's how echo chambers are created right and like we should challenge ourselves to be better not just because it's better for like what i said about spreading spreading the wealth, spreading the benefit, whatever you want to call it, but actually because I think it pushes us forward into a better place literally across the board. For sure. No, I think I think we'd all agree with that. Okay, well, yeah, definitely really good to be shining a spotlight on this and let's keep pushing forwards. Okay, next story in the show comes from TechCrunch and that is Apple Card's savings account reaches over $10 billion in deposits. Apple announced that the Apple Card's high-yield savings account offered by Goldman Sachs has reached over $10 billion in deposits from users since launching in April. Following launch, Apple announced they had reached $1 billion in deposits within a week. The savings account offers an annual percentage yield, or APY, of 4.15%. Since launch, 97% of savings customers have chosen to have their daily cash, i.e. their cashback, automatically deposited into their account, the company says. Savings accounts are managed by Goldman Sachs and are currently only available in the US. Um, Adam, how, how scared do you think banks in the US should be by, by these numbers from Apple? Um, I don't think they should be scared. I think they should see it as an opportunity. I mean, Goldman kind of went in first and sort of sees this. Um, things have to be said about Goldman's sort of risk appetite after the um, financial crisis, of the, you know, in, in 2008 and 2009. But um, I think um, a big brand entering financial services, big consumer brand entering financial services, a consumer brand that has so much control or so much penetration into like our uh, everyday life and 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 whatever we do and like you know our productivity um our work um is is only a good thing and and um if if anything it attracts more people to um you know to to think about savings right rather than uh borrowing endlessly and just getting themselves into into massive debt so i i see that actually that element as quite positive where where apple is focusing um you know on the savings product and and it's it's been quite a success in the us yeah absolutely um rory you are single-handedly representing the entire us for us now on this show i mean like first like do you have you used have you used it as an experience or like what's kind of been your take on on this rollout from 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 the us side of the pond I mean, I use Apple Pay and I've kept a few dollars in like my Apple wallet or whatever they call it nowadays, but I haven't used their deposit product or their card product. You know, I would I would take um, a stance similar to Adam and I think it'll it's great for consumers and it kind of opens them up to the market. But I would kind of push that at least the U.S. banks, I'd be a little bit nervous if I was them because Apple is such an innovative company. And if they're able to have a dynamic product with an immediate um you know, rollout plan to call it, I don't know, half or 60% of Americans, that's dangerous. And I think that the banks are already kind of perking their ears up a little bit in that they've got competition from the wallets, call it Apple Wallet, Google Wallet, now PayPal Wallet as well. And he who controls the card on file is kind of he who controls who's spending. And if you're able to just sub out your card on Apple Wallet with your new Apple card, as opposed to your major U.S. bank card, that's a big frustration for banks potentially. Um, so I, I believe that the banks are actually coming together to build their own wallet under the early warning systems, if I remember uh, correctly from what I've been reading out there. So I think they kind of see that there is this this you know small little journey happening at Apple, and if it continues going, maybe in ten years it could threaten you know what they've been doing. 
with that being said, these banks are so you know, rooted in, in zip codes with their branches and kind of the folks that, that end up using them. So I do think that it will take a long time before Apple um, you know, has a big foray into this. But I wouldn't. I would never underestimate them. And I think that the banks are frankly being attacked on on all different sides right now. Not even just with Apple, but via the pressure of the networks. Um, in that, with Fed now, you could potentially pay via your bank account which would, in theory, eliminate a lot of the interchange the banks are getting. And the merchants are really pushing for it. And so they've got a lot of a different attack vectors. And I think that Apple, as smart as they are, is is not going to let one of them slip by if they have the opportunity to try to own that market. Yeah. Um, Ross, do you think, obviously, you know, $10 billion is a big amount, right? Do you think there might be some hope from some of these banks, you know, as Rory's alluded to, that maybe hitting that kind of sum might mean that regulators start to... You scrutinize what they're doing slightly more? Do you think maybe they're kind of holding on to that sort of hope maybe? Yeah, I mean, look, 10, 10 billion in, in assets is a, it's a big milestone, right? It means that you're sort of like kind of bigger now than the community banks and all of that sort of stuff in the US, right? So sure, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to naturally attract like greater regulatory scrutiny. But equally, I think it's important to like maybe put some of these figures that we're seeing in context with sort of like macroeconomic trends, right? Like, I'm not for a second saying that Apple isn't, like, performing incredibly well here. And that we all know that there is, like, real strength in the Apple brand. People will naturally be open to, like, trying any product with the Apple logo attached. But there is also something bigger happening here as well, right? Like, even bigger than Apple. Um, And that's what we're seeing with interest rates in markets around the world, right? And the impact that that's having on competition between financial services providers, not just the traditional banks, right? Um, And we're seeing that flow through, I think, in consumer behaviors, right? So we've, obviously, we've talked a bit about the US, but we've also seen news come out here in the UK that the big four banks are losing like significant deposit share to challenges with more competitive interest rates on savings accounts, right? That appears to be one of the single biggest drivers at the moment the customers going out into the market, looking at new savings products, opening new savings products. Um, and it has to be said that Apple's offering 4.15%, right? That is in a different universe to the sort of roundabout half of 1% market average right now in the US. So good as the product is, and as impressive as these numbers are, I would say that it's hard to overestimate the impact that these sort of macroeconomic factors are having in terms of those acquisitions and, and, and the deposits. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's really interesting because you know, maybe historically when it was a lot harder to open these accounts, then you know, for the vast majority of customers who, in all honesty, like really don't have that much on deposit, like you know, they haven't got massive savings reserves, it actually is the difference between 1%, 2% going to be a game changer? Probably not. Like, is it going to make a real difference to them? But that was then, and this is now, when actually you can open a savings account you know, with a couple of presses on your phone screen. Like it's it's completely different. And so I think it's not really even about how much money will I earn, but more about just not wanting to feel taken advantage of and kind of not wanting to feel like your your money isn't isn't working as hard for you as it possibly can. So I think maybe there's a lot of this sinking still in the big banks of, you know, we've seen these kind of discrepancies before. We've seen some of this switching before and it wasn't so bad. We rode it out. It's fine. But I don't, I don't think that's reflective of the, of the easiest switching environment, like switching with like definite, definite brackets around it. Cause it's not true switching, right? It's like the easiest form of switching to move your savings from, from one place to another. Um, but I do think we're in a completely different different environment. Um, I suppose the other thing, Ross, that's interesting you know, regarding the, the Apple setup is obviously we've heard rumours around the relationship between Apple and Goldman Sachs, you know, potentially that Goldman Sachs is looking to sell their partnership to, to Amex. Do you think these these numbers will, will make them change their minds? No, I don't think so, honestly. I mean, uh, January, uh, Goldman Sachs revealed that it lost over a billion dollars just on the Apple Card partnership alone since 2020. I think they've obviously made quite an ambitious step into the sort of consumer retail market. It's obviously not their sort of traditional, historical, natural sweet spot. And I think the losses that they've taken, not just on the Apple Card partnership, but I think in that space more broadly, um, has definitely, I think, called into question the sanity maybe of that move, how well they're actually doing in that space. And so I think the uh, the decision is actually at a sort of higher, more strategic level. I think it's unlikely to be impacted by this. Yeah. Um, and Adam, obviously, we talked about stable coins at the start of the show 
Do you think we could see Apple in the crypto space? Oh, I just wanted to point out one thing. Uh, you can currently pay um, for an Apple MacBook with PayPal. It kind of ties it, ties it all together, right? And I think Apple is actually one of the merchants that accepts um, or lets PayPal accept crypto um, to kind of to pay for a MacBook, I think. Um, so um, just linking those sort of two stories a little bit. Um, I think um, Apple, uh, look, once there's a tipping point, um, I think we're still with crypto digital assets, we're still at the sort of innovator stage. Like if you follow the early adoption, like innovators, early adoption, early majority, uh, uh, late adoption, and then late majority um, kind of theory, we're still in innovator stage pretty much, right? Which is, which is less than 2% of the world's population is actively using crypto or digital assets for something, right? I think once we cross the chasm, um, into early early adoption and maybe early majority, um, those brands like Apple um, that are quite close to you know to our day to days, um, um, Meta, I, I fully expect them to come back at some point. I, I fully expect Google to sort of take a look at this, um, and and Apple, just like all of those other brands, will will, will start taking notice. Uh, but we need to reach that tipping point, and we still need that sort of killer use case. And I don't know if Apple has the you know, best ideas in the world and we'll actually make it happen. We'll kind of invent a killer use case into digital assets and crypto. Uh, we shall see. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, Apple getting into crypto would be a positive thing for sure. Let's, let's watch out. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quickfire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Ross, what have you got for us this week? All right, well, I've got one from AltFi with a headline, Pocket App raises $10 million to bring financial stability to underserved communities. So London-based fintech Pocket has raised $10 million to democratize financial services for low-income and underserved communities. The fintech, which aims to help those who are not well-served by traditional banks, started life as a prepaid card back in 2014. It has evolved over the past nine years and now has a suite of products that include current accounts, international transfers, income advance, cashback, and budgeting features. Since launching, Pocket has amassed more than 800,000 users across the UK and processed around $5 billion. To find out more about Pocket's plan with this new funding, we reached out to Viraj Jitania, co-founder and CEO, for more information. Our $10 million funding round allows us to scale our customer numbers and to offer products to our customers that they really need. We have a super low marketing cost for every customer that we sign up. And by having this additional capital, it allows us to invest more deeply into our marketing channels that are working so well for us. In terms of products, we know our customers need more products from us and they all have a common thread problem, which really is, comes down to cash flow volatility where incomings don't match the outgoings. So we want to help them solve that problem. We believe we can do this in two ways. Firstly, with lending products, we have recently launched an income advance product and we're extending this into a revolving line of credit product and potentially a credit card product soon as well. Secondly, we're helping our customers to do more with the money that they have. This means providing products like savings accounts, roundup savings, budgeting tools, insurance products, and adding more partners to our market-leading perks and rewards offering that provides cashback at some of the biggest retailers in the UK like Sainsbury's and Primark. By building up our customer base and broadening our product offering, we can meet our objective of being the financial champion for those who need it most. Yeah, so I think inclusion has come up in a couple of different uh, stories that we've discussed already. But for me, anything that extends financial services to excluded or underserved communities is, is can only be seen as a good thing. I think Pocket especially has a, a really long track record of doing this for low-income communities. And the demand is there, right? Like 800,000 customers that they're already serving. Um, so I think being able to scale this through this new funding and obviously better serve those needs of those uh, those marginalized con consumers, I think is a positive development. And um, I just wish them every success. Yeah, I'm really interested to see kind of how they actually roll out some of those credit products in particular. Like it's such a amazing thing if you nail it, but it's such a tricky thing when you've got people that are financially vulnerable. So really intrigued to see how we do it. Okay, now it's time for our and finally section of the show, a look at something more offbeat from the news this week. Drake's collaboration with Shopify is a messy virtual mansion stocked with exclusive merch curated and designed by the rap star. Hip-hop superstar Drake is most widely known for his chart-topping music, but the Canadian artist is also no stranger to the power of retail, 
working with e-commerce platform Shopify, Drake has created an e-commerce site modelled on his $100 million Toronto mansion known as the Embassy. Rather than scroll through the same old grid of product listings, fans can explore various virtual rooms featuring items to buy. These virtual rooms include a recording studio, a workshop, the pool, obviously, and the bedrooms. Fans can pick up items including pool floats, eye masks and fragrances, all shipped by Shopify merchants. Ross, is this the shopping experience that you've been waiting for? I knew you were going to come to me first on this. Um, look, I, it's not for me, right? But I don't think it was designed for me, right? Like It definitely um, was. I think they had you absolutely, you, you individually in mind, yeah. Well, then they've really missed the mark. But what I will say is I think there is huge potential, right, in designing these types of immersive experiences, bringing people closer to the celebrities making all of that feel a lot more tangible. And also, actually, I think there is huge potential um, to maybe frame retail and consumerism in a slightly more meaningful context. I don't think this is it. This feels a little bit sort of vacuous and shallow. And it's like, I look, I get the link. Like Shopify is sort of like websites and it helps people sell their products and all that. So I like, I, I get it. I think the thread is there. It just doesn't feel deep enough it's like just come in look at some stuff buy some stuff i i don't really get it does, does shopping need to be deep do you want your shopping experience to be deep well no but then if you think about what you said about it's not just the same old grid like i think unless you're actually adding something over and above the grid then the grid's probably fine i really don't want to go shopping with you now i feel like you're gonna be like marching through the shopping center like looking for some sort of like emotional reveal or like life-changing revelation or something it's um anyway i'll stop bullying ross rory um are you gonna swing by the embassy i might i mean i love seeing something new and fresh i think that for shopify as prolific as they are they they might risk um being out innovative if they don't start innovating you know fast forward 10 years and let's just imagine everyone has vr what will your shopping experience look like? Is this the V0.1 of that experience? So I think that they're always thinking about innovating. You know, maybe TikTok in five years has an amazing digital experience for buying things that feels slightly more immersive because it's in your phone and maybe you are quite literally seeing that product in real time in every direction being utilized. Um, so I think that Shopify has to do something great or the Etsy's of the world and the Ebay's, et cetera, might, might be coming for them. So. I'm excited to experience it. And then for Drake, I mean, he's not, he never shies away from being at the forefront of, of brand deals, at least. We saw Drake do a stake.com deal that I think was, um, it may have been north of 50 million, maybe even 100 million, something absolutely ridiculous um, for a betting website. And at the time, everyone thought, you know, he was maybe a little bit out there for doing it, but proved to potentially be a very successful venture for him. So I think that he's always thinking about how to innovate. And then on the merchant side of things, I believe he had a really successful brand. I forget what it's called. But I know the owl was everywhere. And if you had that sweater with the owl shirt on, you were one of the cool kids. So no no surprise that he's he's kind of leading the charge of Shopify there. I'm mainly just grateful because literally by having this story in the new show, it meant like we had a bit of a lull before the show started. I went onto my Spotify, I listened to a bit of Drake and instantly my algorithm will significantly have improved given like, but it's 95% like toddler nursery rhymes and things like that. So I'm mainly just grateful for that. But I mean, Adam, are you, are you hoping that your favorite retailer will offer a similar experience? And who would be your, your celebrity of choice if you could kind of situate yourself in a, in a celebrity space for your shopping experience? Where would it be? Maybe Taylor Swift. It's going to be slightly, uh, <laughs> slightly unexpected, probably. But uh, but yeah, uh, I uh, I think she has a very keen sense of style, <laughs> and uh, and is not like overly, uh, you know, excessive in her uh, you know manifestations of her own style. Um, just going back to Drake, uh, I'm actually moving to Toronto, so I'm I'm going to check out the uh, the embassy uh, in uh, let's say uh, physically, right? But um, just focusing on on this on this story itself, I think, um, uh, and and then zooming in on the merchants, right? So just purely from a business perspective, this is an interesting opportunity um, for cheap advertising uh, from from the merchants' perspective, right? Like think about it. This is just like an application someone developed, like someone else is paying for it, right? There are those goods that I'm selling as a merchant, um, you know, being mentioned in this sort of very immersive showroom experience that's bound to be, to have a quite a nice sort of efficiency to conversion ratio. 
um, I would say, as, as an advertising platform. I, I saw something similar. I think Drake did it, or maybe there was some, some other artist or celebrity. Um, during COVID, you had those sort of virtual concerts Right, and you had uh, sometimes also product placements during those concerts of like what what the like Ariana Grande was wearing, right? And then you you could you could buy that um, you know online using using participating merchants in that sort of stunt. That's that's a very cool experience. I, I actually I was to an Ariana Grande's concert uh, um, in the sort of virtual world, and that was actually um, in a video game in uh, Fortnite, and it was an amazing experience. I can tell you, it was really 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 cool. Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift, these were probably not things that we thought we'd be talking about at the, at the start of the show, right? But um, always, always great to toss them in. Okay, well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you? Ross, let's kick off with you. Sure, I'm on at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. Awesome. Adam? I'm on LinkedIn. Brilliant. And Rory, what about you? Just Rory O'Reilly everywhere. Twitter, LinkedIn, just don't try to Instagram me. <laughs> uh, and as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, or you can drop me an email, kate at 11 Thank you for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11 Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.